Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Even for folks who don't care about housing issues, right? If you care about schools, you care about housing. If you care about domestic violence, you care about housing. If you care about public safety, you care about housing. According to a 2020 statistic, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, estimates that over 10,000 people in Chicago experience street or shelter homelessness on any given day, with black Chicagoans making up more than half of the total homeless population. And the busing of migrants from other states to Chicago has only amplified the debate on how to combat this growing issue. A debate, in part, that has led to a vote this coming March. The binding referendum will appear on the spring ballot for voters to decide whether or not to raise the real estate transfer tax on high-end property sales to tackle the problem of homelessness. Proponents of the referendum, known as Bring Chicago Home, say that $100 million in additional annual revenue could be generated to house and support the approximate 60,000 people who experience homelessness in the city per year. Just by increasing the tax on sales of property, valued at over $1 million. But others believe, as overall values are on the decline, that this increase would kick commercial property owners while they're down, and eventually will do the same to homeowners. Clearly, we're going to see the mansion tax rhetoric, and they're going to try to mobilize people behind the tax the rich, and people really need to understand who's getting taxed and how that tax is going to fall, and realize that it's really not going to, in any way, address the housing needs of the city. So if approved, how would the funds generated from this increased transfer tax work exactly? Or if Chicago voters say no, how else can homelessness be fought in Chicago? The real estate industry in Chicago needs to make a choice. Do we want Black folks to be able to afford to stay here? Do we want Black people to be homeless? I'm Jim Hankey, and this week, two sides discuss Bring Chicago Home, what the referendum would mean for business and residential property owners, as well as the city's homeless population. Let's get looped in, Chicago. For some background before we get started, here are the numbers on what the taxes on the transfer of property would look like if the Bring Chicago Home referendum gets passed. Essentially, it's a tiered system. The transfer tax for properties, that's both private homes as well as retail, commercial, and office space, valued at less than $1 million, would drop from 0.75% to 0.6%. Proponents of Bring Chicago Homes say the estimated value of properties under $1 million represents about 95% of the properties in the whole city, so the majority of homeowners 
would be getting a tax decrease, and the increases would only affect approximately 4% of annual property sales. For those properties sold for between 1 and 1.5 million, owners would pay a 2% transfer tax, which is nearly triple the current rate. And properties sold for 1.5 million or more would pay a 3% transfer tax, which is four times the current rate. So for instance, let's say the space of the previous Lawndale Cinemas at 3300 West Roosevelt Road were sold. Under Bring Chicago Home, and according to its $5 million value listed on LoopNet, the potential tax on that transfer would be about $150,000. Here's WBBM's Craig Delamore with additional information after the city council passed the ability for the measure to go to the people. The City Council Rules Committee voted 32 to 16 to put a measure on the ballot asking if voters approve raising the tax on the sale of properties over a million dollars to help raise money to fight homelessness. The measure now goes to the full council. Mayor Brandon Johnson later congratulated the alders and the activists who fought for it. And Brings Chicago Home will create a sustainable and permanent funding source to facilitate permanent supportive housing and address the problem of homelessness in our city. But downtown Alderman Brendan Riley questioned whether the money would be used wisely. If we're being asked to vote on an item that could potentially cost property owners in Chicago $100 million plus a year, we should know where the money's going right now. So to learn more about both sides of this debate, I spoke with two voices who shared their respective insight and statistics. Dixon Romeo will appear during the second half of today's episode, and he's the executive director of Not Me, We, part of the coalition of groups were organizing to pass Bring Chicago Home. But first, I chatted with Paul Vallis, former candidate in Chicago's most recent mayoral election and currently an advisor for the Illinois Policy Institute, a nonpartisan research organization. He feels that because so few residences are valued at over a million, the brunt of this tax then immediately falls to commercial property owners who are seeing a steep decline in value currently. In a recent written statement through the Policy Institute, Vallis spoke against Bring Chicago Home. Quote, Let's be clear. This is being sold as a mansion tax, but it will fall overwhelmingly on hard-pressed commercial property owners whose property values are currently plummeting. Unquote. So we began our discussion about defining property as it relates to this referendum. My question to you just to start off is, is it fair to say that one of the big sticking points for those against this referendum is the citizens' understanding of how far the word property carries in this potential referendum. Yeah, you know, I think you kind of defined it right there. It's a, it, you know, it's not a mansion tax. It's a tax on property overall. And Crane Chicago Business did this analysis looking at property sales from last April to the previous April. And about 90% of those property sales in terms of total values were commercial property. So clearly it's indisputable that the overwhelming bulk of this tax will be borne by commercial property owners they clearly do pretty straightforward research. And they they point to and they document the plummeting property values. Uh, most recently, there was a tower, one of those commercial towers. It was marked down by 63%. So what that means not only uh, is the commercial property going to bear the brunt, but they're not going to get nearly the revenue that they anticipated because the commercial property values are plummeting. The reductions in commercial property value could fall as great as 15%. And if that happens, there'll be a significant shift in tax burden to homeowners. And we already have the second highest commercial real estate transaction tax on commercial property now, but we also have the highest property tax among major American cities on commercial property. 
So this is further going to depress the market and it, it will result in a shift in tax burden. If we were to take commercial properties out of this completely, and it was just, as has been said, a tax for the sale of residential property that's over a million, a million and a half, is that something more you could get behind? Or what would be your statement on that as well? If you want to tax millionaires, tax millionaires, you know, I mean, millionaire homeowners or their millionaire houses, go right ahead. This isn't going to do it. Remember, they're trying to generate upwards to what, $140, $150 million of revenue. There's not enough million dollar mansions being like sold that are going to generate nearly the money that they claim they will need to finance the, the mayor's yet to be defined and specified affordable housing program. In the written statement I mentioned earlier, Vallis closes by warning on the issue of tax increases, quote, homeowners will be next, unquote. I asked him to elaborate on that theory. The bottom line is post-COVID and the slow recovery and the fact that the downtown is severely depressed, not only in the post-COVID world, but also because crime has significantly increased in the 1st and 18th district. Clearly, crime is impacting uh, commercial activity in those areas. Commercial property values are, are, are going to plummet. When that happens, and when commercial property makes up so much of the total property tax pie, because local government's tax rates rise to meet their levy requests, regardless of the decline in local property values. What happens is when property values from one set of classification of, of property declines, it shifts the tax burden to another class of property. So anything that further depresses the value of commercial real estate, whether it's your inability to get a handle on crime or laying one tax on top of another or increasing taxes, anything that hurts that, will result uh, in a shift in tax burden to residential property owners. One of Vallis's suggestions on fighting homelessness without Bring Chicago Home is through the TIF program, or tax increment financing. As defined by the city's own website, the TIF program is a special funding tool used to promote public and private investment across the city. Along with building and repairing roads and infrastructure or cleaning polluted land, another use for TIF, and key to this topic, is to put vacant properties back to productive use, usually in conjunction with private development projects. Look, they just declared a $440 million tax increment financing surplus. And the mayor in this budget literally gave $271 million to the Chicago Public Schools, which are already spending $30,000 per, per student. Without any sort of financial offsets, you could easily use the massive TIF diversion and begin to prioritize affordable housing and to make that part of your tax increment financing program. Every year, it's now well over 15% of our property taxes are skimmed off the top and they're put in this massive discretionary fund called the tax increment financing program. Why can't some of that money be dedicated to fund efforts to, you know, to provide affordable housing, efforts to address homelessness? You know, you can get the CHA in the game. It's been scandalous the way the CHA has been managing public housing. They are the Chicago Housing Authority. Uh, there are tens of thousands of residential properties that are that are unoccupied. They're in tax court, scavenger sales, things like that. I mean, the city could go in and in some cases use eminent domain to seize that property if it's vacant and then use TIF monies to renovate, turn the property over to community groups and housing advocates to renovate those buildings and make them available to, to the homeless. 
you could remove the obstacles to apartment owners to convert unimproved space to garden units. But there are well over 100,000 apartment buildings that have unimproved space that could be converted to residential units. The garden unit advocates estimated you create 125,000 affordable units. Uh, you know, so there are there are things that you can do. It needs to be part of an overall strategy. Uh, you know, rather than going back to the well and, and and really designing a tax, selling it as a mansion tax when you know full well, you know damn well that the, the overwhelming vast majority of that tax burden is going to fall on the hard pressed commercial real estate property owners. Clearly, they want it on the ballot. Clearly, you're, we're going to see the mansion tax rhetoric. And they're going to try to mobilize people behind the tax the rich and. You know, they're going to try to engage in that rhetoric. People really need to understand uh, who's getting taxed and how that tax is going to fall and realize that it's really not going to in any way address the housing needs of the city because it's only going to generate a, a small portion of the money that they projected. So Alderwoman Haddon had been quoted as saying that if and when voters give city council the authority to impose these tax changes, that is when more specific details will come out on how that money will be spent. Are people willing to wait that long in your eyes, or what would you like to see potentially before this March vote? What would you like to see? Well, some of the things that I talked about, you could clearly lay out a strategic plan to secure, to seize, to secure, or, or to buy every vacant residential housing unit in the city, which I think it seats 10,000. You know, HUD did this uh, analysis. You could Google it. They did this analysis on a city by city on the percentage of residential units that are vacant city by city. And they had this n number, like in Chicago, This they, they basically said 10% of Chicago's residential housing units, whether it's multifamily housing or, you know, or, or single family housing, et cetera, et cetera, are vacant. So clearly there needs to be kind of a comprehensive assessment of the property that is out there so there are things that we can do while we wait for this referendum to be voted on. When we talk about those who are unhoused in Chicago, I feel that we can't not talk about the migrant crisis. And, and a mm -hmm. lot has been made uh, both in the press, pro and con, about Chicago's status as a sanctuary city. So in your opinion, should Chicago continue to bill itself as such, be a sanctuary city, or has this recent influx changed that? Well, let me just tell you this. When you talk about sanctuary city. The governor has got to use his executive authority uh, to to really control the influx of migrants and and to manage their influx, because the state of Texas alone has bussed thirteen thousand five hundred migrants to Chicago. So you have a single state flooding, LRI, mostly Chicago's migrants, and, and so what do you do? You you tell Biden control the influx. You, you go down to Texas like the various people did to discourage the migrants from coming. No, I mean the bottom line is, you've got to control the influx. You've got to let Texas know that we're simply not going to accept them using taxpayers' funding to, in effect, engage in human trafficking and just sending and flooding our state and our city uh, with migrants. And and I'm for you know I've, I'm not anti-migration. I'm not anti-immigration. But this is ridiculous. They have been targeting specific cities, and unfortunately, maybe because of our sanctuary city status, or certainly because of it, or politics, or our rhetoric, we've kind of been leading with our chins on this. But 
But let me tell you, the mayor's supporter is in the city council, uh, particularly his far left supporters. And I'm a lifelong Democrat, and you know I'm not trying to play politics with this, but they want they want open borders. They want migration. I mean, the mayor has been echoing the comments that have been made from many in his city council leadership when when they explained that the migrant crisis is a product of quote unquote racist American foreign policy. I mean, I, I didn't realize that. He's auditioning to be the next secretary of state. I mean, the bottom line is we're being flooded with migrants. I think it's important that the governor step up the plate and really put a halt to it. You turn some buses back or you come in and process people and return to the point of origin. You do that a couple of times. They're not going to be flooding the city anymore. So you, you've got to get a handle on the influx. The second thing you have to do is stop making excuses about giving people work visas. On the one hand, as a sanctuary city and state, we are boasting that we're not going to cooperate with the federal government, with federal law enforcement agencies, with ICE, when it comes to uh, national security and public safety issues, because we're a sanctuary city. All right? But on the other hand, when it comes to giving people work visas so that they can go to work, there are thousands of jobs available right now in the hospitality industry, restaurant industry. They, they can't find people to work. But yet when it comes to getting them work visas, what do we say? Oh, my God, we can't do it until the federal government gives us permission. I mean, if you want to exercise your sanctuary city muscle, huh, don't do it when it comes to making sure people who are coming here uh, are not threats to national security or not threats to public safety. And do it, exercise that muscle when it comes to giving people uh, who have been properly screened an opportunity to go to work. Being a veteran of the National Guard here, there are 50 National Guard armories in three or four spaces across the state, and there's like five or six National Guard armories in the Chicago metropolitan area. How many of those are housing migrants? Why, when the buses make their way up the interstate to Chicago and literally travel down highways that are in close proximity to dozens of National Guard uh, facilities, incidentally, that house soldiers on weekends and things like that, that you know have kitchens and things, uh, why aren't there certain stops along the way where people have been housed and evaluated and assessed? So that they're just not throwing up, uh, you know, outside one of the Chicago high rises, like the the old Sears Tower, like 200 people. You know what I mean? Just unannounced, unprepared for. So you know, it's time to get in the game. I think those are things that that the governor is going to have to do because clearly, I think the city they don't know what they're doing. When we return, we'll get the other side of the debate with community organizer Dixon Romeo. Stick around to Looped in Chicago. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Now with the MLB app, you can get baseball your way. Pick your favorite team, your favorite players, and get customized highlights, stories, and breaking news right on your home feed. Follow the action with Game Tip, where 3D replays add another dimension. Plus, notifications can keep you connected to every pitch, every hit, every game. The MLB app. 
Baseball, your way. Download it now for free from the App Store or Google Play. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trade parts used with permission. To speak with an advocate of Bring Chicago Home, I got in touch with Dixon Romeo. He's the executive director of Not Me, We, a grassroots community group working on behalf of poor and working class citizens of South Shore. Not Me, We is also part of a coalition of groups organizing to get Bring Chicago Home passed. Romeo today will reference a recent CBA program, that's a community benefits agreement, which would prevent the displacement of renters, condo, and homeowners in that South Shore neighborhood in light of the impact of the Obama Center to be completed in 2025 and growing development in that area. So he's no stranger to getting these types of ordinances up for vote. But we started our discussion on one of the uphill battles of his position, youth advocacy. You know, it's a a great challenge, but also huge potential for young people to see themselves in their school, in their neighborhood, and understand that they actually have a voice and the ability to coming together, right, organizing, change things. And so that's what the group is about, more or less. Uh, How do we pull folks together so that Black folks in particular in the neighborhood have self-determination, the ability to control what happens to them, right? Um, I think that's connected very much to the genesis of Bring Chicago Home, because when you look at who are the folks actually most affected, most homeless in the city, they are young people, right? 20,000 something CPS students are homeless, and then they are Black folks, right? Um, The overwhelming majority of folks who are homeless in Chicago, whether you're on the street, doubled up, or in a shelter, are Black. And even for folks who don't care about housing issues, right? If you care about schools, you care about housing because if you don't live in in the area, you can't go to the school, right? If you care about domestic violence, you care about housing because most folks who suffer from domestic or interpartner violence, right? They are stuck or trapped in a home a lot of the times, right? If you care about public safety, you care about housing. And so it is a key thing that stabilizes neighborhoods. It is a key thing that creates the stability that lets us do all the other things that we want to do. But Bring Chicago Home helps us get revenue that addresses how do we actually build permanent support of housing for folks, right? Just to be clear, the folks who are most impacted, I think we all agree, should have a say in this. And then we should listen to what experts say. And the, the experts are the mostly impacted people. I haven't met a lawyer, I haven't met a reporter, I haven't met a judge that knows eviction court better than folks who've had four or five, six evictions. Because you see where things go wrong, right? And folks who are homeless tell us who are members of our group, but also in this coalition, they want permanent support of housing. They are trying to get services that they they need mental health supports. They need job training, they need wraparound services. We don't want to put people in situations where they're in a unit for a year and then they're back on the street next year, right? That is what we're trying to address. And that's what this campaign is about. What in your eyes are some of the most efficient, but also most impactful methods that we could see these funds being used for once this proposal potentially takes effect? Like what in your eyes would be a swift measure, but one that can be done rather economically pretty quickly? That's a great question. So one thing that we know is that there's already different things that the city does that are part of their comprehensive kind of like approach to addressing homelessness, right? Prevention, crisis response, housing and supports. BCH money could go towards a plethora of those things. But the main one we're really talking about is permanent supportive housing. The reality of it is sometimes the simplest solution, we may not like it. It may not be the most, you know, I think sometimes there's this idea that we need to be super, super, super creative. No, people who are unhoused needs to be in homes, right? That is that is the best solution to addressing homelessness, right? Is by having the homeless people. And so being able to generate revenue to create 
the development of personal that's truly affordable, right? Like AMIs that actually affect folks is a really, 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 really big and most effective thing. But also those wraparound services, those preventative services, those crisis response services, those things already kind of exist. And so adding more funding to those helps as well. A lot of what I'm reading about Bring Chicago Home is seeing that this tax be a dedicated revenue stream in the legal sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess my question is, who oversees that? Is that the mayor's office? Like if this goes into effect, is that the mayor's office that makes sure that we're not borrowing from that new revenue to do other things? Or is there, you know, some other group that would measure what's being brought in if this tax were to, to happen? I'm just kind of curious on how things would go there. So here's the process of how it works. When Bring Chicago Home passes at the ballot in March, then there needs to be a subsequent ordinance. We cannot pass, you know, despite all the criticism, it's not that there's not a plan and we haven't talked about it. The city's talked about it. We've talked about it. It's literally legally we cannot pass an ordinance that details how the money is spent until it actually passes the ballot. We could introduce legislation that today that says, here's what we want. It's like, well, you can't do that. Right. And that's all going to be subject, you know, to review. The goal is that there is things in place that make sure and that the ordinance language clearly states that this money has to go towards these housing supportive and services, right? Um, and so it would be the law, right? The actual law of the ordinance, but also, yes, the city would, would then have to implement said funds. And it's on us as a coalition, as organizers to, to make sure that those things go in the right place. And we will. When Romeo refers to doubling up, he's describing a situation where someone without a permanent residence is sharing space with someone who does, whether that's crashing on their couch or having access to a separate bedroom. Either way, the website for the Chicago Coalition of the Homeless mentions that this isn't a statistic that HUD counts when they provide numbers on the current homeless population. Another topic that came up in our discussion was permanent supportive housing, which HUD describes as a permanent residence in which housing assistance like long-term leasing or rental help and supportive services are provided, such as life skills or job training, mental health services, case management, or child care. Advocates of permanent supportive housing point to studies like the one done by the University of California, San Francisco, which states that in looking at Project Welcome Home, a permanent supportive housing partnership in Santa Clara County, 86% of participants were successfully housed and remained in their housing for several years. To be clear, the plan and model of addressing homelessness through permanent supportive housing is tested and works, right? When you give people housing plus supportive services, depending on, you know, if you're someone who's dealing with mental health struggles, you're homeless, you're on the street, putting you in a unit that that is yours, right, that you can afford or subsidize so that you can be there and having those wraparound services for you is going to help, right? If you're someone who's doubled up and you're homeless, you're sharing your, your, your couch surfing, staying with, you know, a friend or family member, um, you don't have legal access or, or, or right to that space, being placed in a unit and those supportive services being job training works because then you actually, you get income that helps you stay in your unit. That is the plan, right? And those things work and there's a retention rate on that stuff. And studies have shown that, you know, this saves emergency services money, right? Folks aren't riding the red line to sleep or going to the emergency room. That's money that is saved. That's the plan. And that's the plan that works. And what about the idea that some vacant storefronts, office buildings, and more could potentially be used to house even temporarily many of the city's homeless? I think when we we have heard this, some of this, I think, is intentionally pushed by like real estate interests, right? Um, and, and it's kind of a misdirection, right? Because like, all right, let's say you take a vacant storefront and you want to convert that into something that is permanent supportive housing. How do you pay for it? 
right? That's that's bring Chicago home, right? Like even like we we have vacant lots across the city that could be developed, right? You know, we're doing a campaign right now, the CBA campaign, where there are vacant lots in the South Shore that should be affordable housing. There are vacant lots in Woodlawn. The coalition already won. There should be affordable housing, and that could have wraparound services and be permanent supportive housing. How do we pay for it? Are we going to continue to tax the overwhelming majority of folks in this neighborhood who are renters, who make less than $30,000 a year, who already pay more than 30% income for their units? Are we going to tax them more to pay for that? Or are we going to tax homes sold over a million dollars? It's like a false choice because it's like, it's not that this is saying, this doesn't pull that into consideration. This is saying, how do you fund that? We need some money to do it. As we're talking about empty space, I want to bring up this quote that this is the executive director of the Building Owners and Managers Association in Chicago, who essentially said that we have about 16 Willis Towers's worth of empty, unleased space in our downtown. I don't expect you to speak for the organization, but do you feel that the real estate worth a million dollars or more in Chicago is hurting the way that that quote seems to be insinuating? I would say that San Francisco in 2016 raised their real estate transfer tax. I don't think there's a person in the world that would tell you that the the cost of real estate in San Francisco is too cheap. No one would tell you that. I think that, you know, the real estate industry is not going to live and die by the real estate transfer tax, right? Like we're talking about 0.6% marginally. It, it, it for folks less than a million dollars. So all properties less than a million dollars, you're actually getting a tax decrease, which is the overwhelming majority of properties. Then you have properties from $1 million to $1.5 million that you're going to pay 2% on the increase only applies to the value between $1 and $1.5 million, right? And then if you're over $1.5, you're talking about 3% marginal rate. So we're not, ta- we're talking about, it's, it's, it's not insignificant, right? Because obviously it generates revenue, but it's a, we're talking about a very, very, very marginal rate on this, right? Um, and the question that we have to ask is, these large corporations and like these property managers, they can't afford to pay their fair share. You know, if we want to get into the weeds about property tax, like we like it's going to generate different revenue every year. But on average, it is going to generate enough so that there can be the production of these things, right? Creating more affordable housing boosts local economies. If I if I can afford where I live, that means I can afford to go work at a job before I can go work somewhere where I actually would need to be in one of those commercial spaces downtown. According to, you know, like the National Local Housing Coalition, right, each dollar invested in affordable housing boosts local economies by leveraging public-private resources that help generate income, right, like residential earnings and additional tax revenue that supports job creation and retention, right? That's their quote. I bring it up to say is that, like, we're talking about a full-on economy and a small marginal tax to help those who are less afforded is relative because the, the alternative question we would ask is like, where else is it going to come from? Uh, you know, I'm not going to be disingenuous and not say that there aren't ebbs and flows in real estate markets. I got my bachelor's in econ from Grinnell College, so I don't want any of my professors emailing me say, you know, proud of you, Romeo, but man, you, what you said on that WBM wasn't really accurate. You know as well as I. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Like, yes, there are micro and macro tensions in markets and those things fluctuate, but the trend and when you look average, is that this this will generate the revenue. Huge, huge property owners, landlords, people who have homes worth more than a million dollars, you got to pay your fair share because it is not equitable, it's not sustainable for us to try and generate that money off the backs of working class and poor people. 
Because one, they just don't have it. And two, 68,000 of them are already homeless. <laughs> I think one of the arguments from the other side is that this will actually eventually affect homeowners if commercial property value tanks there'll be less and less businesses coming here and buying up those buildings so then therefore the difference needs to be made up somewhere and that will fall upon the backs of homeowners eventually it just seems to me like okay so there's one argument that says this is going to take too much money out of our pockets and in turn we're going to have to use that to raise the rents and then in addition to that they are also saying but also this tax is too high because it's going to deter sales. It seems like there's a lot of different things that are being said that don't make sense in terms of a sequence of how you would think works, right? Either this tax is the worst thing, you know, the arguments that I hear, right, this tax is the worst thing ever. No one's going to sell anything. It's just too high. But then they say, and whether, you know, we know that only 4% of residential rental buildings sell in a year, right? But then they also say, well, we're going to have to raise rents to adjust to that increase. And, and it also it's going to affect homeowners because it's not going to generate the money they think it is, but it's going to take a lot of money from me. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Either it's going to generate funds or it's not. Either you're going to raise rents in response to that, which again, they don't, they don't have to. This is a choice. The real estate industry in Chicago needs to make a choice. Do we want Black folks to be able to afford to stay here? Do we want Black people to be homeless? That's the choice. And for me, the answer is clear. No, I don't want to live in a city where 68,000 folks are homeless. I don't want to live in a city where, you know, 20,000 CPS students are are homeless. Right. And so that means someone has to pay for that. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm showing my pockets on camera. They're empty. So like we need we need folks who are generating revenue to do that. Um, and they can't have it both ways. This can't be a, a, a property sales tax killer, but also won't generate money, but also because it's going to generate so much money, we have to raise rents in response. Like, which one is it? Those seem like contradicting things to me. And so I know that folks in Chicago won't be fooled by that. We talk to folks every day in our communities about this. Folks are really clear that on their end, they're getting the short end of the stick. And then, you know, outside of all that, like just dealing with those contradictions of that messaging, just as I graduated from college, my rent and folks we talked to, no one's rent has gone down, <laughs> right? If anything, it stayed the same, but the overwhelming majority of folks' rent is going up. It's been going up and it's going to go up whether Bring Chicago Home is passed or not, because that's what the folks who own the majority of poppies want to do. They're in this to make money. And our campaign is focused on people. So what people are voting for on March 19th, it's not about who's read, you know, Blanchard and who really understands microeconomics. The question is, do you care about people? Do you care about folks' ability? A small, 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 small majority of folks to make some profit. And can we take a little piece of that, a marginal piece, 2% on if you're making from 1 to 2.5 to actually address homelessness? I think folks are going to vote yeah. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jim Hankey, with segments of on-air reporting by Mallory Vorbroker and Craig Delamore. WBBM's news director is Craig Schwalb, and Myron Kaplan is our managing producer of national podcasts. You can subscribe to Looped in Chicago on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts, and be sure to follow us on social media at WBBM News Radio and at WBBM Podcasts for visual content relating to our episodes. We'll keep you looped in again right here next week. See you then.
We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.